0: So Andrew's at Groundswell today. Um, he is fairly secure in his job here now, so he felt like he could just take off for a Sunday. <laughs> Not at all. He'll be a blessing to them. That's where um, Brian and Peggy are fellowshipping, so he will be seeing them and bringing our wishes, best wishes, to them. Fasting. I, um, I have my fair share of funerals. I'm gonna come in sort of the back door on this. There was a time when in Toronto, um, we had two funerals a week for three months straight. So it was an aging congregation. We didn't know who would die, but we knew that two people would die every week. And so I was at the local funeral home a couple of days every week. One day, the funeral director said, hey Ian, um, if you ever need a ride to like a Jays game, um, just give me a call, and I said, What do you mean he said well we'll 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 send you a car. I s- said, Like the hearse. <laughs> he said, No, 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 the family car we'll send you the family car. Because I get to have so many funerals, I get to think about death and I get to think about the body of a person that has died it's a little bit morbid, but We got into this job for those sorts of reasons. And almost every funeral, I will say to people, do you have the sense um, when you look in the mirror that you're looking out of your body? And I find that people nod at me. So oftentimes, it's, it's a congregation of people who are not people of faith maybe not of our tradition, but almost everybody sort of nods and says, yeah, I get that, that um, when I'm looking at myself in the mirror, I feel like I'm looking out of my body, that I am not the body that I'm looking at. So I, I want to talk this morning a little bit about the body, because when we get to the topic of fasting, We're talking about something very physical, something very present to us, which is our existence in a body. And so before we understand how fasting fits into our spirituality, let's talk about what we understand about the body. What do we think the body is? How long do we think the body exists and that sort of thing? So let me pull this a little bit closer. and i want to talk to you about um, two ways that we might understand our relationship to the body one way it might be and has been historically in the church and is in our day as well one day one view is that what we think of the body is that it is something that we should transcend so there was in the early centuries the the Gnostic dualism heresy that basically believed that all matter is evil and only spirit is good. So if matter is evil, the thing we should try to do as far as the body is concerned is transcend the body. We, we should dismiss the body in some way or other. And if we go to a second view, the second view is that we would think of... Um, our opportunity to transform the body. The first is a Greek idea and the second is a Hebrew idea. The second is a more biblical idea. So in the first one, when we think about transcending the body, we may think about going up or we may think about going down in a sense. Um, Stoicism and Epicureanism are two sort of Gnostic dualistic views and just don't worry so much about the terms. But the Stoics try to um, be the best, most principled person that they can be and that their existence in the body is only um, to serve them as a vehicle for doing honourable things. Epicureans, on the other hand, will say, what matters in the body is that we enjoy ourselves. And so you remember Epicurean delights that sort of idea. And the Epicureans are saying, yeah, the body, is not permanent, the body is not here forever so we will just use it and um, see our existence in the body to be for our own pleasure, our enjoyment. On the other hand, the Hebrew idea is that the body is not something um, that ends but it is actually something that, that, that transcends time in this sense. And that as we transcend time, we move past the actual physical life in the body. And there is a continuity in the Christian faith that says bodily existence is not temporary. But bodily existence is forever. And that marks us as different um, than other philosophies and approaches to life. If we really understand that this body will continue. So we say things that sound strange and sound religious when we bury a person and we say, so we, we commend this body to the earth whence it came in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. And we say that every time we leave a body in the ground, we talk about the fact that we are sowing a seed into the ground and that when a farmer sows a seed, it's because that seed will die and will grow into something new. So the Christian faith is not a faith that says there's some spirituality that is apart from our bodily existence. Our spirituality is body-bound. It is body-oriented. So when we go into the New Testament, we ask questions of ourselves, well, what do we do as far as our bodies are concerned? And we want to get all the way around to, why would I ever fast? I mean, what kind of spirituality is it that would require me to fast? Um, is that a Greek idea, or is it a Hebrew idea, or, or what does it mean? He, Romans 12 is kind of Paul's perfect application of his enormous theology of sin and the body and its flesh in the New Testament. And Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, you're very familiar with it, I'm sure. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, when uh, I've, I've told you before, when my dad was a pastor and um, I, I decided to be a different pastor than he was and I ended up being the same kind of pastor he was. So one thing he always said, and it just drove me crazy, he would say, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you ask yourself the question, What's it there for? And you go, Dad. Stop! That is so corny. And then I find myself saying, when you see the word therefore, you should ask yourself, "What's it there for?" So, therefore, is a pivot word in Paul's theology in Paul's letter, and what he says, if 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 we don't understand the theology of it, and if we don't understand how it is that we are anxious to apply. A Christian view of bodily existence uh, will miss the point here so what does he actually says so he says therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living holy sacrifice that's a contradiction in terms and he's using it very deliberately right how, how can you have a living holy sacrifice if it's living how could it be a sacrifice If it's a sacrifice how could it be living so what is he talking about he says this is the way that you can worship god and then he says now the way to go about that is to have your mind renewed and what we're wanting to do as we even think about the disciplines of the christian life we're wanting to know how can we have our minds renewed how can we live into a new way of thinking, a new way of understanding. But when Paul uses the word, therefore, if you were to open up your Bible and go back page after page and ask yourself, well, what is it there for? Like, what does this follow? You will find that there are several chapters that don't really seem to answer that question. They don't seem to be the reason for the therefore. There's a little um, sort of interruption in his thought about Israel and what he understands about Israel, and you still have to keep going back to find out, well, what's it there for? So when I ask that question, what I find myself talking about is Romans chapter 6. We won't go through this sort of word by word, but this is a wonderful passage where Paul really explains how he understands the physical existence or the bodily existence of followers of Jesus. So here's what he's saying, and he says, because this is true, I want you to worship God with your bodies. There will be a living sacrifice as you live into the truth of what I've taught you in chapter 6. Here's what he says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And then Paul has this little phrase that he uses a lot of times as meganoita in Greek. It means not on your life. Never, don't even think about, may it never be. So what he's doing, he's setting up a straw man, which is not fair. Like you want to say, Paul, we didn't say that. And he says, yeah, yeah, I know what you're thinking it, right? So he says, should we continue in sin so grace can abound? No, don't be ridiculous. Well, why would we even think that? Because Paul has just gone through an exercise where he explains how incredible grace is, how that we are forgiven our sins, that all of our guilt and shame and all that God could bring as an indictment against us has been cared for by the death of Christ. Therefore, Paul says, um, don't be thinking this way, that... If grace is so powerful, why don't we just keep on sinning so we can keep going back for more grace, right? If, if I'm going to get forgiven, if grace is so enormous, I'll just keep sinning. doesn't matter because I'm going to get forgiven. And you know there are people that live that way. They'll even joke that way, right? Paul says, may it never be. He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So here's the biblical theology of what happened to the sinful us. Paul phrases it this way. He says, we have died to sin, and so how can we live in it any longer? What does it mean that we have died to sin? Uh, And how does that finally round the corner to saying, okay, and go ahead and fast? Um, Where's the connection? Paul says this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what's our understanding? Our understanding, um, which we live out in a dramatic form with baptism, is that when we um, come to know Christ, we are understood to have been dead with him and buried with him and raised with him. That mystically, there is something that happens by which God assigns uh, our faith in Christ um, as a way that we participate in his actual death, burial, and resurrection. So if that is spiritually true, Paul says, live into that powerfully. Don't keep sinning because you should not let sin have any power over you. You have been... um, completely crucified to sin. You've, you've, you've died a death to sin. And when you were buried by baptism or by the confession of your belief in Jesus, you were also given newness of life. So live that way instead of living a sinful life, saying it's okay because there's grace abounding. There's always more grace and forgiveness. So he says, if Christ Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so that we too might walk in newness of life, because if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Now, it gets tricky to try to understand what the theological meaning is of all of this, but, but it is Paul's um, theology of sin and salvation out of which he encourages us to live a certain kind of a life. When we came to know Christ, um, we died to ourselves. So um, there's a verse that says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So that's a clear statement that Paul himself makes in 2 Corinthians. If anyone has died in Christ, um, then... We, we can count on the fact that there's a new life that is ours, not um, potentially, but it is actually ours actually, that we have actually been changed. So something happened in me and in you when we came to be new creations in Christ. Our desires, our sinful desires were actually um, immobilized. They were actually thwarted by what Christ has done and to the extent that we live into the truth of that. So the thing to ask is not the question, um, should I do that thing that I'm being tempted to do? The proper question is, do I want to do that thing that I think I want to do? And the actual biblical answer is no. Now we think we want to sin, right? We, We think we want to be angry. We think we want to, whatever it is, and we think that the Christian life is defying that and denying it. But the Christian life is a life in which we discover that we don't want to do that thing, or we don't want to live that way. I don't want to cut that guy off, even though everything in me tells me I do want to cut that guy off. So what is, what is that all about? What has happened? So Paul says the death of Christ was so powerful That you entered into its absolute effect when you trusted Christ. That means that you are not a sinful person at the core of your being anymore. You are a forgiven person whose nature truly is the nature of Christ. And in a situation like ours here, we might say, yeah, yeah. So theologically, that seems to make sense, but practically, it doesn't. We do want to sin. We do want to do bad things. We do want to do wrong things. We do want to, to do excessive things. So why is that? Well, the beginning of the truth in the answer is to say, discover that you actually don't want to because you've died to that and you have new desires. How do you sort of make those new desires come to the surface? How do you make those new desires come to be true in you? So that's where Paul connects Romans 6 over to his therefore in Romans 12. And he says, so what I want you to do is actually and actively commit your body as a living sacrifice. So that in this long stretch of chapters in Romans, he will say, stop presenting yourselves to sin. Stop, you know, dabbling in sin. Make choices that have to do with your mind having been renewed. But that have to do with that which is true according to what god has done for you in christ in recreating you into a brand new creature into someone with new desires so his application is in romans 12 and says here's the way you should live you should uh, commit yourself to y- your bodies being given to him as living sacrifices now how do we round the corner and say well So what does fasting have to do with that? The the nub of the teaching of Paul's victorious living understandings is that we understand the truth and we understand the power of the truth and then we enact behaviors that are true to what is true about us. How do we do that? Gracie Fields, long ago, sang a song. And someone told me about that song years ago as a way to explain how I understood the victorious Christian life. The words of the song are simply this. He's dead, but he won't lie down. It's a weird song. It just goes over and over. He's dead, but he won't lie down. He's dead, but he won't lie down. He's dead, but he won't lie down. Sometimes the truth and insights of scripture are basically understood with a simple idea. Here's the simple idea of Romans 6 and Romans 12 and fasting. As far as our sinful lives are concerned, we're dead. But the truth is, we won't lie down. I'm dead, but I won't lie down. How am I going to help my sinful flesh to lie down? That's where the disciplines, I think, come in what is fasting fasting is taking charge of my physical life to the extent that I am absolutely in control of my desires where my true desires are awakened where my true desires are 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 encouraged along and as we as we understand that we understand the battle that is going on because in in the earlier chapters paul says i get that there's a, an incredible battle that goes on, and, and I have that battle, and theologians try to figure out, did, was Paul writing that stuff before he was a follower of Christ, or after, or what? But Paul says things like, um, I know what's good, and I want to do it, but the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing the things that I, all, I and he ends up by saying, wretched person that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of flesh? And theology in Romans 6 is that this, this body of sin is, is the attachment that there is between my flesh and the sinful world in which I live. So I am being triggered all the time. And it's, there's an old program that is still running, even though it's broken and has been abandoned. It somehow gets kicking in to my life. And what used to stimulate sin tries to do it again. So fighting against that requires the the arduous work of saying, okay, I know what is true, I'm gonna count on what's true, but I'm going to have to behave into this in a way that demonstrates the truth of what I believe and how I'm going to live. So saying no to the body in, in the matter of food is training the body to say no, because it's in my nature now to say no, but I will train my body to say no by stopping doing things that remind me of an old system that promises to me the ongoing still satisfaction of things that the old self knew and and fed on. Um, But if we just say, well, we know this is true, How are we going to stop living as though we are being controlled by this old old system? And I think that's where, rounding the corner, we kind of get back to the question of fasting. Why why would anybody ever fast? Well, if we're serious about taking control of the body, which is still reaching back to an old program that is promising to satisfy us, and we know it doesn't, and we need the new desires to kick in, um, maybe we need to say something about... That means that we will do things that are hard to do to get the better result based on the true facts of what Christ has done for us on the cross. He's dead, but he won't lie down. So if he's dead, that's good. How can we make him lie down? Fasting, maybe. A disciplined life, saying no. Um, Getting the clarity that comes with that sort of practice Maybe in a while into that, I can look back and say, you know what, that was the key. I was dead, but I wouldn't lie down. But when I took control and did lie down, I've moved into a new sort of a phase. Hard ideas that I think we need to try to grapple with, and we will come back to them again during this this series. But the question is, why would anyone fast? Well, because there's stuff that has been going on in our lives related to our bodies that we need to pay attention to and move past into more victorious living. Why don't we pray about it? Father, help us to grapple with this um, hard idea of a body that actually is going to be thoroughly transformed someday and a body that we will actually live in forever and ever and ever. and an existence, a consciousness that is is a bodily consciousness. Um, Give us a taste of that by helping us to live victoriously in the body while we're in the body here. Help us, Father, to know that we have died to sin, that the death of Christ was enough, and help us then to live into the truth of that death and to live his life. Uh, which is really our life to to claim and to own help us father to know how disciplines can be uh, keys to to turn the lock of truth in our lives help us to have minds that are renewed to understand the truth of your word and help us to have the faith uh, to step into and live into and the things that you show us by your spirit in jesus name amen